What's good, people? Hotel Jesus. We back with another sharp conversation with Hotel Jesus. Got a wonderful show lined up for you today with some very intelligent, reputable young gentlemen. Gonna be talking about raising money, capital, your startup venture. But before we get into that, let's pay the bills. As you already know, you can vote for your favorite grifter at grifties.com. The app is live now, grifties.com. Make sure you go check that out. Go vote for your favorite or least favorite grifter, however you want to look at it. I just saw an article come across uh, my email today. My alerts popped up and said, Central Bankers. Um, about 86, according to the Bank of International Settlements, BIS, are actively exploring the development of central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, in an effort to defend their territory from cryptocurrencies, Bank of America analysis said in a Wednesday note to clients. CBDCs effectively combine the efficiency of cryptocurrency transactions with the safeguards safeguards <laughs> of a central bank backed asset like cash cash is backed by the central bank i don't know what that means and though highly radical the implementation would also make it easier for governments to implement the monetary policy measures that have helped keep the econ uh, economy afloat during the pandemic this to me sounds like a lot of fear that's what that sounds like you start using all these terms like we're stupid you know the average person would understand some of this stuff but if you're familiar with money the history of money monetary policy so on and so forth you know there's some boo bs garbage so on that note point to start out make sure i get into them stack your satoshis get your bitcoin from the hotels coinbits.app or coinbitsapp.com if you're familiar with that link as well You'll get live notifications whenever somebody signs up with your link. You can go in and you can earn Bitcoin. Essentially promote and earn five fiats, five fiat dollars worth of Bitcoin every time somebody signs up and rounds up at least five roundups. You get an email alert once they do, once they do sign up and you get another email alert. Once that uh, cash is, I should say, Bitcoin is deposited in your account. That's coinbits.app. A lot of people like to say, oh, you know, I want to buy Bitcoin. One of the best ways to get Bitcoin is not even to buy it. It's to earn it. It's practically free. Nothing's better than free Bitcoin. So make sure I go get in tune. Coinbits.app. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce to y'all my esteemed guests. Founders of Funder Fox, Tariq and Sharose. What's up, fellas? What's going on, Hotel? What's popping? How you doing, uh, Hotel? Life is good. Life is good. What do you make of that story? The this this whole uh, CBDC thing. Um, central bankers coming with their own bank digital currencies. What, what what are some of the first notions that come to mind? You know, what are the first things that pop in your head when you heard that? I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, they're trying to counter uh, cryptocurrencies in general, because if the cryptocurrency is backed by cash, I don't even know what that means. That's just, 
his is cash. It kills the point. <laughs> uh, okay, I thought I thought I was the only one tripping. All right, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you. You guys helped me put together some agreements for some of the startups I work with. For anybody who's not familiar, these are the official attorneys I work with uh, to put together my agreements uh, to secure my equity stakes in the companies that I'm involved with. We're working on a deal right now that should be closing within the next week or so. Can't wait to make that announcement. Very, very awesome app. I, I think a lot of influential, affluent, and busy people, if you're busy, you're going to love this. Uh, it's going to boost your productivity. Uh, so I can't wait to make that announcement. So, Shiroz and Tariq, what, what, what kind of operation uh, or firm are you running there? Tell us, tell us about, you know, how you guys created this. And I'm talking about Funder Fox shit. I'm talking about, you know, yourself as attorneys. Give me a walkthrough of your education, so on and so yeah, forth. Absolutely. So just a little background on us. Uh, I'm Shiroz. I started as a musician. So I was in the rap game, worked with guys like Joe Budden, Dipset, all these people. Um, then I got more familiar with the business side of the music game. So I decided to go to law school because I was like, I don't think there's enough paper in, in this industry for me. Right. I don't think there's enough paper in there. Or if there is, there's just too many people fighting over fighting over the small opportunities that are there to, to get. It. So I went to law school. I worked at um, I specialized in entertainment law. I work uh, entertainment and corporate law. I worked at uh, Warner Brothers in-house, Warner Brothers Records, worked on. I had like some of my clients were like OVO, just Drake's label. Um, so I started with that. And then I decided, you know, let me, then a bunch of artists started coming to me like, hey, can you represent me? Can you help me with this? I got this contract. Should I sign this deal, that deal? Um, so I just became kind of like the go-to guy uh, because with entertainment law, the big thing is, unless you're at a big law firm, there's a couple of like boutique firms that'll do some entertainment law. And a lot of times they specialize in like acting or, uh, you know, for like TVs and movies and stuff. And not many of them specialize in music. So I'm very specialized in music because I was, I was actually drafting all the contracts for all these big artists, um, doing all their like album extensions, sitting in on the negotiations for everything. So um, I got into it that around that time I met, uh, you know, I met Sark around that time. Um, we decided to kind of, you know, we, we were on the same mode of like, we're not typical attorneys, right? Like we went to, we went to law school, but the mindset wasn't like, I'm going to be sitting here practicing law until I'm like 50, you know, the goal was, let me get some valuable skills, some good, some good skills and like things that could get me in the door and lead me to other opportunities. So he had the same mindset. So we ended up linking up and we decided to create a law firm together. Um, so he, he's been kind of like a mentor for me as well. So we linked up, we were connected through a mutual friend. Um, and, you know, he's been practicing law a lot longer than I have, but he kind of helped him show me the ropes on things. And obviously I know specialized areas of law that he hasn't practiced. So it was just kind of like a merge there. So we came in with the mindset, we're going to we're going to make a law firm and we're going to run it like a business. We're not going to run it like a typical attorney. Like we're, and we're going to try to, uh, use technology, try to automate as much as we can and try to, because the legal industry is legal industry and sometimes like real estate are some of the industries that they don't adapt with technology, right? They're like, they're stuck in the stone age. So they take forever to adapt. Um, and so we, we, we came with the mindset, all right, how are we going to run this like a business? How are we going to implement technology and do things that we want to do? And then eventually, you know, the goal is to have our law firm just kind of running 
you know, we'll, we'll hire, you know, as we expand, we'll hire people. And then, you know, we can focus on some of the other uh, ventures that we have going on. Yeah. So, uh, Tariq, you got a, you got a couple of grades in the beard there, which means you've been around the block a few, a few times. So, yeah. so what's your history with this law thing? You, you a rapper too? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not a rapper. You were introduced as young lawyers, and I was like, man, I wish. But like, I've been practicing law for like 13 years. Uh, I started off my practice in the city. I was working at a, a firm that did uh, large scale litigation. And uh, I also worked a lot in international trade. Uh, both those areas really taught me that most of this stuff is just a big, huge waste of time and a waste of resources. I mean, I worked on, for example, I worked on the 9-11 litigation, which mm. is the litigation that's associated with 9-11. And just to imagine the scope of this case, the damages were $3 trillion, mm. right? They were suing the amount of uh, people that were involved in that lawsuit, the amount of lawyers alone, like we would go to just a, uh, a conference with a court and uh, just lawyers and judges, which is usually just like two lawyers and a judge, right? This would be like an entire courtroom packed with lawyers, right? Uh, just for like procedural stuff. So it was like a massive pooling of resources, a waste of time. This, this, this lawsuit involved the royalty of Saudi Arabia. Mm. Uh, it, it went all the way to uh, the Supreme Court and involved Barack Obama when he was first inaugurated it was like an insane like lawsuit and i was just like we did all this like for what like what are these resources going towards like this is going towards nothing this is just complete bs um why do you feel it was going towards nothing what's the outcome you, there's, a, there's a big civil lawsuit on 9-11 there's three trillion in damages who's collecting those damages and like who's paying those damages like there's not going to be an outcome right it was it was more i guess political but it's a lot of lawyers making a lot of money but there was nothing actually happening Mm. Uh, so to, to me, this lawsuit was just, just, you know, that, 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 I mean, this litigation in general is just like a waste of resources and a waste of uh, time. What about and the, the families, of the, the families of the victims? No, they, they weren't part of that 3 trillion payout. The families, the, the, um, the families were involved, the property damage plaintiffs, the, the airlines, all those people. The question is the defendants were not like, who are you, who are you suing? Like, who's the defendants that's paying? Right. Mm. So, for example, the first defendant that's name is Al Qaeda Army, right? And I'm like, okay, like they're not gonna appear. Like it's gonna be a default, okay? And then you can go and collect it <laughs> from who? <laughs> you know, they sued. Uh, they sued at that time. They had sued Iraq, right? Okay. And then, uh, which which then came under U.S. control very quickly. So the United States was quick to defend Iraq in the lawsuit. You had the you had the suit against the king of Saudi Arabia at that time. Uh, several individuals that were from Saudi Arabia, uh, a lot of banks, a lot of any any sort of uh, Saudi-based NGO or nonprofit was involved in the lawsuit. Like these people were not involved in 9/11, right? It was so. There's this like very like, you know, it was like the, the conspiracy. It was like a conspiracy that all these people somehow worked together and this led to 9/11 happening. It's a very like vague sort of uh, case. And then this case just goes on, like it just drags, right? It just, it doesn't end. It's not like there's a payout. Who's going to pay and why? Mm. $3 trillion, like this is like a made up number. You know, there's not $3 trillion out there, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so you're obviously of, I can assume Islamic faith, right? Yeah. What's that like at during 9-11 and you have this attorney of Islamic faith you know, like they, you know, what's that like? Because obviously back then they think everybody is a terrorist that's Islamic. Like that was a huge stereotype. Did you face any of that? Yeah, plenty. Like our clients were a, a Saudi-based NGO, 
And, um, you know, whenever they were sending us documents or things that we requested, um, the mail was being intercepted and opened. So before it got to us, uh, this is the reason why I had to fly. I had to fly to, to uh, meet the client there and talk in person because like a lot of stuff, that stuff's going on. They, were, they froze uh, assets for our clients so they couldn't pay us even though they had the money, but they couldn't pay because they're, they're, they froze assets from uh, Saudi Arabia. It was a, it was a lot of that stuff was going on at that time. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, could, yeah. I'm sure you could write a book about all that. Just that lawsuit alone. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. that's still, still going. I only worked on it for like three years in, in the middle. Um, and then um, I was doing a lot of international trade work. Um, that was a lot of BS. International and, trade work. What's that mean? Like, uh, basically people investing in a foreign country. Um, uh, and so they have to go through their, the regs of the foreign country. And there's a lot of international, uh, agreements that get, that get involved there. Mm -hmm. There's bilateral treaties, there's international or like the world trade organization, all those things. Uh, so, you know, that was also a lot of BS. And then, uh, I came into working in, in corporate law and securities and which is like, this is the, the whole experience that kind of led me to like build a firm like this. And to kind of understand what's happening, right? Because in law school, it paints a pretty rosy picture about what you're doing, some sort of like a noble cause or whatever it is. But in reality, law schools, the law itself and the law schools along with them are nothing more than just a gatekeeper, right? And this is just a gatekeeper to, to, to keep access limited to few people and exclude other people. Mm. Uh, and, that, and there's no real reason for it to exist, you know, other than that. Mm. And so for, for us, the, the, the goal of this law firm that we've created now is to sort of break down those barriers and to kind of like make things more accessible, provide more access. So what, what do you think is, is being gatekept? The, the aspect of law, the world of law, or? I mean, the, 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 the legal industry is actually built on creating a barrier. Yeah. So there was, it was uh, actually what happened, and I, I might be mistaken on this, but you can correct me on this. They actually created the bar like the like the state bars to prevent people from becoming lawyers when it's called a bar it's called well, it's literally <laughs> called a bar because i think there was i think there was never put that together oh yeah. shit i think there was if i'm not gonna say there's two reasons one was there was i believe a black lawyer who applied who was trying to practice law and due to some clerical error he was listed at like his application or whatever something went through so he could practice law and then um immigrant lawyers were coming in mm -hmm. i think from Italy and France and other Probably. places, right? So they were coming in and they were already lawyers in their countries. So to prevent all these other people from becoming lawyers, it was like, yeah. that's what the bar was created for. So. Historically, you became a lawyer in the US, you became a lawyer by apprenticing for a lawyer. You work for a lawyer and then you were a lawyer. That's historically yeah. how it was done, which is the most logical thing to do because law school doesn't teach you much um, they always say that we teach you how to think like a lawyer, but that's just BS, right? Uh, really, like what, when the learning process begins when you get a job, right? So when I started working as a lawyer, that's when I started learning most of the stuff that I know now, right? It's not like I look up or let me go back to my law school textbooks. This is just like we're reading like, you know, maybe like 19 cases from the 1800s on like uh, yeah. some, we read some British feudal cases and stuff like that and because they're teaching, because they've got to teach you something, right? Yeah. So they come up with these really old you know, cases and like this kind of stuff and just discuss like these theories just to be like, we're academics and we're intelligent and we know this stuff. Well, this, this bar that's being held up in front of people, yeah. 
preventing them from becoming lawyers. Is is there anything about that that's unconstitutional or or do you just find it's just probably ethically wrong? It's I mean, so you have to, I think you have to look at like where where the laws even originate from, right? So like I, I remember my first year of law school, I'm sitting in um I'm in a constitutional law class being taught by uh someone who's an attorney for the NAACP and she's like highly esteemed attorney and all this and that, right? I remember the first case we went over, um, I, we, we went over like two or three cases and I, I just asked a question. I'm like, well, it doesn't seem like they're following any rules. I, it just seems like they have a conclusion in mind on yeah. the Supreme Court cases and they're just reverse engineering whatever answer they want. Yep. So they're just creating logic for whatever answer they want. And then additionally, like a lot of these laws just come from like, all right, what well, were some white guys in Europe saying, right? What did yeah. they say? They decided this is right. Okay, so now that's just going to carry over and create a basis for all the law in the U.S. And so for me, at that point, when I was sitting in that class, I looked around. Everybody else is focused. I'm like, this is stupid. Like that, that was that, that was my thing. I was like, this is stupid. Like this yeah. is like literally, you're just you're making up whatever you want, and then you're just reverse engineering any sort of logic that fits to make that uh, applicable. So I just yeah, I was I was uh, researching the Sedition Act um, from the early days. And, uh, you know, we talk about freedom of speech and press, like you said, they were just pulling, like, what did, Ger what did uh, England do? Okay. Let's build off of that. Yeah, and then right. as I'm looking through some of this case law and seeing how the justices are interpreting the constitution, and it's just like, which, which, which begs the question to you could the constitution have been written better or is there always going to be some way to logically circumvent and find some weird interpretation? What you think? Um, I, I think the constitution could have been written better. <laughs> okay. I, I think, I think it leaves a lot of room. I think the so from my understanding, this is what, I don't know what the founding fathers were thinking from my understanding from the stuff that I've read. Uh, I think the idea was to preserve Liberty uh, for the people. Uh, so that personal civil liberty and personal liberty was like one of the core values. And the, this idea of the Bill of Rights uh, was, was basically that, right? Like just to make sure that it, it's, it's not giving a right, but rather it's saying that the government is not going to impede on these particular rights. But then to go ahead and create a lot of ambiguity as to like what kind of laws Congress can and cannot make, uh, particularly when you talk about the, the Commerce Clause, for example, right? Uh, uh, dormant or active commerce clause, like there's a lot of leeway, right? To the point where like, you know, Congress can make a law on a particular thing just because there's a billboard because that business advertised on an interstate highway, right? Or whatever kind of thing that you can make to, you know, it gives them a lot of uh, rights to make, um, or rather a lot of power to make laws in a lot of areas. And then of course the power of taxation, which also <laughs> we don't like taxes the good old 16th amendment yeah yeah that thing don't get me to cussing um well great i love the background um like i said before i enjoy working you guys you guys are great um let's shift gears and let's talk funder fox right um what was the motivation behind funder fox well first tell us what funder fox is and then and then sort of segue into the motivation behind why you felt that you needed to launch this endeavor so funder fox is basically you know what we were talking about and how we felt about the law as a barrier uh so funder fox is basically our solution to this in the area of when it comes to business and entrepreneurship 
so like other areas that we discussed, uh, business and entrepreneurship has been heavily regulated, um, particularly when it comes to raising capital and investment cap money, right? So for example, so I'll give you an example, right? So the, the, every single, um, whenever you're just selling a portion of your company, right? Uh, you're selling that portion, that's a security, okay? Every security is, is regulated by the SEC, okay? It can fall into one of two categories. Either it has to be, it has to be, a, it has to be registered with the SEC, right? Which is a massive, I'm talking about a massive obligation, right? To go through the registration process with the SEC or it's exempt from registration under one of a few um, categories that the SEC has cut out, right? It could be exempt under this, this or this, which are also uh, require filings, but they're less burdensome than the registration requirement, right? Up until fairly recently, the most commonly used one was what they call Regulation D, right? Reg D allows uh, basically you to raise any amount of capital. Um, it, you know, it was unlimited, it preempted state law, it was, it was this, but it could only have accredited investors, right? Now, accredited investors, uh, just to make people familiar, just basically wealthy people, right? It's people who have um, 200K in income over a certain amount of time, people with a million dollars in net worth, or like some institutionals, right? Banks you know, insurance companies, things like that. Yeah. That's accredited investors. So basically this thing has unlimited capital you can raise, uh, but it's only accredited investors can invest in it, right? Just to give you the, the just to weigh it out, the, the amount of capital raised under Regulation D just last year, right? Is $1.8 trillion. Hmm. $1.8 trillion was raised last year hmm. under Reg D. And that's right? under the pandemic. Yes. So, so what's happening here? There's a lot of stuff happening here uh, that are only these accredited investors are privy to, right? And even then, mostly on the institutional side. And and what are they investing in? Large hedge funds, large private equity funds, most a lot of tech startups, a lot of companies like that, right? So these people are are and clearly so much money is flowing in because they can benefit from that, right? So they're benefiting significantly, right? Unaccredited investors. So if you're not an accredited investor, like majority of Americans, like the 99 percent. <laughs> Right, you your investment options. What are they? You can buy stocks on like Robinhood, right? <laughs> you can uh, you can maybe invest in a mutual fund through like your bank account or whatever and get like your small returns. Bonds, bonds, bonds yeah. right? And and the last one, and I don't want to leave this out because this is a reality. Lottery, right? State lottery. What's the what's the revenue on state lottery? Okay, so check this out for New York. $9.74 billion in lottery sales. That's 2020. That's one year. For 2020, for New York alone. New York alone, $9.7 billion. And where is this money coming from? It's coming from the bottom 1%, right? Yeah. This, is coming from, this is coming from the poorest people. So they've literally squeezed $9.7 billion out of the poorest people, right? But those people, they say, look, the, the, so basically what the SEC is saying, and this is exactly what they're saying. They're saying that you unaccredited investors, you guys are too stupid to make a decision on, on risk, right? You guys don't know how to calculate because you guys are too stupid. But and you, so like, we're gonna, we're gonna come in and stop you because we're like the father figure, right? We're yeah. gonna come in and stop you from making any stupid mistakes with these highly uh, risky tech investments or hedge funds, right? <laughs> and the lottery tickets, like go right ahead. You're not too dumb for that. You're not too dumb for the lottery you tickets. Spend, you wanna buy the whole paycheck on lottery tickets, be, you know, no limit, no restriction, no nothing, go right ahead. Yeah. So like what like, like where's that's the hypocrisy like where's the 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 balance here right so we're telling people that you can go ahead and buy as many large as you want because this is not risky 
but this investment in a tech company or a particular hedge fund is way too risky for you to do. Yeah, and you're too dumb to realize it. So we, we gotta we got we just gotta cut your legs off so you don't even have a chance to look at it. Exactly, you that, that's what they're saying. You don't yeah. have a shot. And this is where 1.8 trillion dollars is going. So that means this thing is making money. Like it wouldn't be raising 1.8 trillion dollars if it wasn't profitable. Yeah. So what does it take to become an accredited investor? You gotta have 200k in income for in, in y- yearly income. Yearly income for uh, for two consecutive years, at okay, least, or have a million dollars in net worth, or yeah. a million in net worth, yeah. which most Americans are not. They're not hitting. You that. tell me how many percent of Americans fit into that. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, what you're saying is only the affluent have access to become super affluent. Absolutely. Yeah. The reason why the risk get richer is because the poor have the access completely cut off. Let me, let me, let and, me. And, and, and the access is cut off in the name of protecting the poor or rather the unaccredited. And let me, let me, let me just throw in one stat here about unaccredited investors, right? So unaccredited investors made up a total of 9% of regulation D offerings. So that means, you know, the rest of it was all just the accredited investors. So people don't even have a shot at this. You know, that's how small the percentages of people that have a shot. Break that, break that down for me and, and tell me what that means, that 9% number. What does that mean? That means of the $1.8 trillion that went into Reg D. So Reg D, basically, like there's, there's two versions of Reg D. Uh, one of it is raising unlimited amounts of money. This is where most hedge funds live. Um, and um, that one is only for accredited investors. Unaccredited can't even touch it. There's another one where it limits how much you can raise. I think the cap is like 10 million or something like that. Yeah. And this one allows you to have 35 unaccredited. Okay. Right. Individual so, investors. Yeah, right. unaccredited. So, but, but it's capped at 35. And even then it has even more restrictions on how you solicit and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So he's saying that one of the 1.8 trillion, 9% of that unaccredited were able to invest. But wow. again, they were investing not in the big pool. They were investing in the smaller pool. Yeah, they don't even have access to the big pool. So. Right, right. Wow. That's amazing. Um, shout out to the people in the chat. Shout out to Hotep Dutch, Ebony. People tuning in right now. This is Big Money Talk. Stop grifting. Hit the super chats. If you got a question, hit the super chats. Drop that question in the super chats. For the rest of you grifters, hit the like button at the very least. The like button is free. Subscribing is free. Make sure you get those hit those buttons. That helps boost the algorithm. That helps the Hotep out. Um, all right. So the SEC. Uh, what is this? The Security Exchange Confederation? What is that? Commission. Did I get that right? Commission. Commission. Okay. Um, what is this body made of? Who Who are these people? This is government? Is this private interest? What is this? No, it's a federal uh, agency. A federal agency. Okay. And the individuals that make this up, um, is there any musical chairs being played here between the private and government sector? As always. i always seem to see that yeah um for example um you know i'm doing a lot of study now so i'm 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 trying to sift through what i saw uh oh uh ig farben ig farben was a chemical company and then there was a, a a commission in america that was supposed to oversee some of the dealings and people left that company and came I mean, to the, yeah, the heads of the FDA are regularly farmer executives. <laughs> regularly. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. So 
Why do you think they do that? You know, do you want to speculate? Big money? Is it is it probably secure the investments for their cronies? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 all big. It's like it's like anything else in government, right? It's like yeah. it's okay. You, you're we're collecting the taxpayer money, right? Yeah. We got a budget for building whatever, building bridges, whatever, right? What who's who's getting hired? Who's getting contracted to? Right. Mm-hmm. Who, what's the company that's getting contracted with some politician's brother-in-law or something, you know, do we know where all that money is accounted for and going? I mean, that's just, it's, yeah. It, yeah. It, really. it's corrupt from top to bottom. Like, like, like FDA drugs are getting approved and then the head of the FDA will then leave that position and get a uh, position with that company they just approved. Right. Yeah. That's like a, a regular routine thing. The idea is that this is, this is the whole problem with, with this whole system, whether you have Republicans or Democrats, the, the people in power are only using that power to benefit themselves and their cronies. Mm. And this is meant to exclude people and it's meant to keep the power within the few that are at the top, right? And and then the law is just a tool they use to kick that ladder down, you know, the one that they climbed up. So uh, if, I, like, no, I, if you read, uh, there's a there's a story, a short story by Franz Kafka, where it's called Before the Law. I don't know if you've read it. It's a short story. Basically, the idea is that like this guy wakes up one day and he decides that he wants to go to the law. And he like, gets ready and goes out and he goes to this building where the law is kept. And in front of the building is like a, a, a gatekeeper. And then he asked the gatekeeper, let him in, he won't let him in. This, this whole time goes by, the guy said he won't let him pass, he won't let him pass. And then the, I, basically the guy just sits there and waits for an opportunity, he never gets it. And then eventually he gets old and sick. And then as he's about to die, the gatekeeper is like, even if you got past me, there's even bigger gatekeepers inside. Mm. And the whole point that Kafka is trying to paint, obviously a better story than my summary, but the whole point that Kafka is trying to paint is that the law is never accessible to the people. It's just not. What What's the name of this book? It's a short story. It's called Before the Law. Before the Law. Say no more. I will be devouring that shortly. Um, <laughs> no, wonderful. So when I think about some of these problems, for example, I think about Bitcoin and I think about how powers that be have started to regulate a lot of parts of that industry. Um, so I say to myself, we, we need a, uh, some sort of attorney body to start to repeal laws. Is there anything people can do? For example, you talked about the bar. Uh, you talked about the whole accredited investor thing. Is there anything that the people can do, maybe form some sort of people's committee of people who understand law to, to, start to lobby and fight and repeal some of this stuff? Yeah. I mean, that's always a possibility. And like, I don't know what goes into getting a law uh, repealed, um, but, but the, the lobby efforts that, so like the whole point of Rose just laughed. He was like, yeah, ah. well, I'm just, I'm laughing because the idea of getting a law repealed is like, it just seems almost like, insurmountable but but i will say this so like and this is the whole reason why we're talking about funder frox and we're talking about it now because because something's happening right now right because although the 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 registration requirements and the reg d and reg a and some of these are, are pretty hefty for most people to to meet and for undercredited investing they have scaled back the law somewhat and created a window and which is what funder fox is here for right so the funder fox is created for that there's a window made in the law and we can find a way to use this to our advantage and, uh, and I think this is the time to act in, which is why this, this company is existing. What's this window? So the window is this, it was, it was actually carved in, and I'll give you a little bit short history. Like it was actually put into effect, it was, it was signed into law in 2012 by Barack Obama. It was under what they call the Jobs Act. 
Um, and one of the things that Jobs Act did was create a regulation crowdfunding. So you have Reg D and Reg A. They created something called Reg CF, which is regulation crowdfunding. Basically, what this means is crowdfunding uh, was a thing that we saw in the form of donations and uh, rewards, like you saw GoFundMe or, or Kickstarter. These are like these are donation based or reward based, right? Uh, the 2012 Jobs Act created a crowdfunding for equity. So basically, I can sell a piece of my company and, and crowdfund that on a portal and people can raise capital for it. Um, Obama signed in 2012, the SEC did not put into effect. They refused to put laws, the rules. So the law is passed, but the SEC has to put rules in, in order for it to go into effect. Mm. They didn't do that for, for what, four, four years? That was three, I think three years. Three years. So for three years, this law that Obama signed did nothing, right? It just sat there. And then three years later, the SEC finally put rules to put into effect. So like, it, and it, it came out, it was kind of restricted. It was like, you can raise a million dollars in a 12 month, in a 12 month period, you could raise a million dollars. It had to be on a registered funding portal that's registered with the SEC. And it, um, but what it did was it, it allows anybody to invest in it, accredited or unaccredited, right? And the accredited, the unaccredited investors had a cap where they can only invest up to 10% of their um, net worth. So if your net if your net worth is like, you know, fifty thousand, you go and invest, uh, whatever, five hundred dollars. So so that 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 came into effect. That was in effect from twenty fifteen to now, uh, and it raised about I think in total in its whole life, which is like about five six years, it's raised about five hundred million dollars. Mm. Because twenty twenty it was two hundred fifteen mil. Yeah. So so last year it raised two hundred fifteen million dollars, right? Mm. As opposed to Reg D's $1.8 trillion. And that's specifically equity crowdfunding, not including like GoFundMe or yeah. whatever, any of those equity things. Equity crowdfunding, right? Yeah. So, so this window, so it exists and it's not really becoming big because there's still not a lot of education around this. And there's not a lot of methods on how to use it. So the, the law and the thing by itself is not enough. We, need to, we have to add more to show how this can empower entire communities. It, it could be a game changer if it's utilized properly. And which is what Funderfox is trying to do. So the reason, one of the reasons why we're doing Funderfox now and not like five years ago, is because now, literally today, uh, the new the new law is going to effect, which raises that one million dollar cap to a five million dollar cap. So now you can crowdfund and raise five million dollars. There's a couple other things uh, that are beneficial in the new law. So there is a window, right, within the law that was created. Now, who do we think for that five million dollar raise? Trump. It went into effect in like the SEC approved it in November. Okay, gotcha. So I don't so know. So is it just like an SEC decision? They decided to raise yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know if this is something that happens. I don't know the, the the back. You know how the government works together. I don't know if it was something that they were waiting for the election outcome and then put it forward, or if it was something that was already in the works. Yeah, I'm just or, wondering why they would arbitrarily just raise that out of nowhere. I'm just wondering. Well, go ahead. Well, one of the, well, the thing was that nobody was using the crowdfunding regulation because yeah. it was too. Like, if you, if you if the if the one million is the cap, then you're gonna get companies that are raising less than that, and which usually means that you're not gonna get a lot of good quality companies. Mm. And so, if the quality of the deal flow is bad, then nobody's really gonna invest in it. Mm. And raising it to five million, maybe the idea is that more people will use this. I got gotcha. you. Makes sense. So, so this is the window that's created, right? But the, but the law by itself is not enough. I think we need to have a lot of education on this and how this is a game changer. And I don't right. think people realize that. So how do you fit into this with Funderfox? So, so first of all, the idea is that you can only, you can only crowdfund on an SEC approved portal, 
right? There's a couple of big ones out there right now. Uh, WeFunder, StartEngine, SeedInvest, but none of them are, are a total package as we think. Okay. Right? So the first thing that FunderFox is doing is it's setting up, uh, we are doing the SEC registration as we speak. Yeah. So, um, so later in 2021, once it, it should be approved and ready to launch. So we'll have the crowdfunding portal. So companies can use this portal to crowdfund, to equity crowdfund and raise capital, right? But like I said, this by the portal by itself is not enough. Right. There has to be another piece to it. One is a lot of companies out there, a lot of entrepreneurs out there don't know that they can do this. And when they realize they can do this, they sometimes lack the ability to put together a company that's going to be structured properly to do this effectively. So there has to be a lot of consulting, coaching, training, mentoring, to get, yeah. Uh, yeah, mentoring, yeah. education, to get the entrepreneurs from here to here, okay. right? And then we have to inform the investors that, look, you can invest instead of uh, investing in lottery tickets, you can actually invest in your, in your people in your neighborhood who are starting businesses, right? So there's nothing that says that these startups have to be, you know, tech startups, yeah. although that's where a lot of the tech startups would go for seed funding, which is also good. And then you can also have people who are just, you know, you're opening up a, a corner store or a restaurant in yeah. your neighborhood. And then you can get, you can crowdfund from all the people in your neighborhood. So they all have a piece of this uh, and it can empower. So you, the people can empower each other. If they can squeeze $9 billion out of, a, out of the poor, just think about it. If we, everybody puts their uh, asset, if everybody pulls everything together through crowdfunding, they can actually empower each other. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ebony, thank you. Darling D. Lisa, $5 super chat. She said one of the most important discussions of the week. If you're not tuned in, you are missing out. Big facts, big truth. Uh, Halima, thank you. $50. Appreciate you, love. She said priceless event here. Thank you. Question for Funder Fox. For accredited investors, does bankruptcy history have any impact on the investor? Also, can one be accredited as an individual or company? So, they, so if you want to be accredited as a, so the, there's two types of credit. I mean, there's several categories, but as an individual, it, you have to meet that requirement where you individually have an income of $200,000 or you have a million dollar net worth as an individual. If you want to be accredited as a company, your company has to meet their credit requirements. So in order for a company to be accredited, it has higher um, requirements. I don't have them off the top of my head, but yeah. like, for example, if for a trust or a nonprofit to be accredited, they have to have $5 million in assets. If you want to be um, uh, investment banks and banks are usually um, investment companies and banks are usually accredited investors. So if your company meets those requirements, then it would be accredited. Mm. But, uh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, does bankruptcy history have any impact on the investor? Bankruptcy history by itself won't, as long as you meet the $200,000 income requirement. For the two consecutive, for two consecutive years. Yeah. Right, right. Gotcha. So the question is, will people that have a bankruptcy in their record have that? If they do, then they'll be fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. So when I think of uh, the topic tonight, you know, raising capital, how is it that you guys are going to help people raise capital or... Or, or what is it? Is there education that people need to understand about? Is it they need to work on their pitch? Do they need to be connected to more investors? So uh, it's 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 a whole process, right? So one thing we realized early on, I mean, just working as attorneys, is how you know because we we've been fortunate that we've started a couple of different businesses and we've been lawyers, so we understand kind of the legal side of it and kind of like how to run a business and you learn a lot of things along the way, right? You learn how to do your accounting, you learn how to um, 
set up the corporate structure, you learn, um, you know, obviously you, you get into new networks. So you learn how to, how to pitch, you know, you don't might not know how to like create a pitch deck. You might not know how to talk to investors or go where to go find them. So our thing is, so funder foxes, you could think of it in two parts, right? One part, which is active right now is kind of like the consulting side, which we also coach and mentor and educate people on, you know, how do you start from point A in starting a business? What does that take? Right. So how do you, how do you go from an idea to actually creating a functioning company? Right. And then how do you manage your books? What, what type of company do you create? What type of, you know, um, compliance is needed to make sure your company is, you know, complying every single year with your state. Right. So, we teach, you know, part of the thing is we're, we're going to be, you know, doing classes on that. We're going to be putting out some more content, just educating people on the general, you know, process, right? How do you get to that point? And then once you, once you have a functioning business, okay, now how do you take it to the next level? How do you go out there and access that capital, right? And that's where part two of FunderFox is going to come in, which is the crowdfunding portal, right? So it'll give companies that are approved the opportunity to get on our portal. They'll get a link. And then they can go and market that link and other things that we're going to include with Funderfox, which other portals don't really do or platforms don't really do is we're going to include legal services in-house at a discounted rate, right? So it's going to be cheaper than going to a law firm or anything like that, because even to crowdfund, there's, a, you know, there's a forms you have to file and there's a lot of regulations that you have to comply with in order to be even to go out there and collect cash, right? Yeah. That's one. The second thing is, um, you know, one, one of our other partners, he's, heavily involved in digital marketing. That's what his background is. So we, we're actually going to be providing um, marketing in-house. So digital marketing. So understanding, you know, SEO, understanding how to kind of get your product out, get your company out there. Right. So we're going to, we're going to have kind of a one-stop shop. So you come in, so you could come in from the start. Maybe you're not ready to actually crowdfund yet, but you might come in. Okay. I don't know. I have this great idea. I don't even know how to start the business. So we might walk you through that. Right. We get you. Now you have an operating business. And then now we tell you, okay, if you do this, this, and this, you might actually be ready to crowdfund. Then, you know, you try to get listed on a crowdfunding portal. And then once you're on the crowdfunding portal, you have a link to your company, right? And now we're helping you market that, market that right? So we want to take you from A to Z, right? So we want to have, and so, so that way we can help out people that, you know, they might not crowdfund. Maybe there's just someone who just needs to start up a business and they might, just, you know, generate a little bit of revenue and they're happy with that. That's fine. Right. So we can help people from that point. And then there's people that are going to be trying to get a lot bigger. So, you know, might have a tech startup or some, some sort of whatever company and, you know, we take them, we get them set up or they're already have their business running. And then now we just help them go out and get that capital and then market it and kind of stay compliant with everything. So, yeah. Mm. Three, did you want something to add? I wasn't sure. Like the only thing I would add is that like the education portion, we talked about um, providing education and consultation to entrepreneurs. And like one of the things about that area is that right now on the internet, there's a lot of that stuff going around, but like all of it, I, I think it's like 90% of it is like fluff. Oh, wow. Everybody's like, you know, everybody's like entrepreneur coach and like this and that. And there's just a whole lot of grifters out here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. And like the whole thing is that we're trying to just cut the crap and be like, you need to do this, this, and this, and we show you how to do it, right? We're not trying to win the grifties, right? <laughs> we're not trying to win the grifties. Go, go nominate. Grifties.com. Yeah. Make sure y'all go nominate Funding Fox. <laughs> um, 
So I got a couple of questions here in regards to raising capital. What would you recommend a company do for their pitch deck? You know, and just to give you a background on, on what I heard was effective was uh, very slim, you know, five to six slides, super simple, high level stuff. Um, you want to expound from there? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, most people that are investing now are not going to read an entire business plan. Um, which, you know, people have, and that's good for them to have and stick to their business plan, but most people aren't going to read it. Uh, you want to have a pitch deck. You want to make it slim and get right to the point. I think you want to be able to convey um, what, what, what is it that you're, what problem is your company solving for? Um, so it's the problem is clear and then your solution is clear. Um, and I think you should be able to understand what your market is, what market are you in and how do you define that market and who are your competitors in that market? And then what gives you the competitive edge? Like why, if you know, this is your market, why should we go with you? Right. Um, and then, the, yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the most important slide ends up usually being who's your team. Like I see this, I get this, who are you? Right. Why? why? Cause like when you're investing in, if you're talking about startup, particularly tech startups, like you're investing in the founder, like that's who you're down to. That's who you're really investing in. So like, do I believe this idea would work? I might. But do I believe you can pull off this idea? That's the real question I'm asking. Right. So, 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 what are some details that individuals should put in their slide deck about themselves? Should they say like, "Hey, I built you know such and such startup years ago, or whatever"? What is it? I have a 700 credit score. Or I think it, nah. <laughs> I think information about you that would help build confidence in in, in your skills and abilities. But you know that that helps uh, in the pitch deck. I think the team, like who's your team, like who's helping you. Um, and what are their, what is their skill set? Uh, I think that helps. Um, but then it comes down to it. I mean, eventually you're gonna have to, you know, go face to face and, and I got to talk to you and I got to feel like I believe in you. Like, cause like the world of startups and entrepreneurship and stuff, I've been down that road. Right. Uh, it's a tough one. It's a gritty one. Right. Are you, do I feel like you're going to get through that gritty part or do I feel like you'll give up? And like, I really, you need to really convince me that like, you're not going to quit on me. Uh, I think that's the main thing. So in the pitch tag, you can actually put down who's your team, what 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 experiences you have that contributes and who's your team and what, what skill set they have. But then ultimately it comes down to it. You have to convince the investor of that, that you're you're uh, willing to go the whole whole way with this thing. In an actual meeting. In an actual meeting, yeah. Um what about traction? Market traction, right? Some you know, uh what are investors because I from what I've been hearing and what I've been seeing is they're pretty much not going to touch anything that doesn't even have revenue yet. Is that, is that true? Yeah. I mean, look, if it depends, so like, um, things are going the other way as well. Right. So yes, some investors are going to be like, show me like a revenue, uh, show me revenue, um, from last year or from this year or whatever. Uh, I'm also seeing that a lot of companies, a lot of investors are trying to go even earlier. Right. So they're trying to get people early stage and they even trying to get people in like a very early stage, right? Because they're trying to capitalize off of um, ideas and people. So like you got a good founder with a decent idea, you come in really early, you're gonna get a much bigger chunk of that equity for a much cheaper price. And so they're trying to capture people at that point, right? Um, so this is obviously way pre-revenue. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of the bigger uh, investors are doing that as well. Some of the ones that can afford to wait, some of them that can afford to wait the three years, five years before revenue starts coming in, um, can you can see them go down early. A lot of them will wait till revenue comes in and then come in on, on the late stage. Hmm. Um, but usually they don't get a good deal that way or a better deal, I should say. 
like the deal is going to be, um, you'll get, the thing is that you'll get more of a short deal, right? Like, right. It's like the whole thing about tech startups that like, it, it's a, it is a risk, right? It's a huge risk, right? right. So what you'll do, if you're, if you're like a real investor, you might want to spread out uh, into a couple of different tech companies at the same time. So you'll have like your class, here's like five or 10 that I'm investing in. And then nine of these are going to fail. And like one of them is going to make it, but the one that makes it might cover the losses of all of them. Right. right? That's the idea. It's sort of like you spread it out. If you're investing in a late stage, uh, when revenue is coming in, things are better. You're getting more of a short shot. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're getting a more established company. You're getting revenue. So of course it's going to cost you more, but at least the risk is, the risk is mitigated. Yeah. Yeah. We've, uh, one of my companies has, uh, we're pre-revenue at this point. Right. Um, but revenues, uh, weeks away and talking big revenue too. And the, uh, investors are circling. They're, they're circling like sharks around us and they want to get in pre-revenue. Yep. And I'm trying to hold them off. Like, nah, <laughs> yeah. end, that's a smart move because yeah. you're, you're going to wait, you're going to get a much better valuation once you have revenue. Correct. Correct. So, you know, that's, that's the battle right now is, you know, uh, getting that, that better evaluation. So, so walk me, help, help me like, think about this thing, right? Like one, how do we value, how do you value a company? Um, post revenue, right? Like we got revenue coming. I can give you exact figures if you need to, but how would you value our company post revenue? What's, what model would you choose? It's an AI company. We have hardware and software comes as a bundle. Uh, we license the software out based upon yearly contracts. Um, the device itself is anywhere from five to 10 K yeah. and the contract could be up to a hundred thousand, depending on how many locations you have. Yeah. Usually like 10, 10 K per location. And obviously the price scales down the more locations we have. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a specialist on valuations, but usually you get a multiplier on revenue based on, um, oh, cause you'd go with the multiplier model. Okay. That's the model that I've seen most commonly used in, in yeah. deals involving. So you go with the multiplier, usually industry based. So some industries will get a lower multiplier. Others, I think tech and like AI space will probably get a higher multiplier. Um, and if you, if you post revenue, then it's probably going to go off that multiplier model, unless you own some really valuable IP and then you factor that in as well. Yeah. If you own the patent, um, then you can, you got to factor that in as well. Right. Right. It's a little tough to value, evaluate the, uh, IP, but, um, but it definitely factors is higher. Yeah. So, so help me think through this a little bit more here. Some of the advantages of holding off the investors. Um, what are the, what are they thinking about pre-revenue? And, and what should we be thinking about pre-revenue as we move towards revenue and we have the investors circling? Um, what are some things we could be thinking about or, 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 or structuring this deal, maybe, so to speak? I think if you're pre-revenue, but you know the revenue is on the horizon, that is kind of close. Um, you know, obviously, the smarter move would be to wait till the revenue starts kicking in and see how you do. But time may not be on your side if you're, if the market you're in is sensitive to how quickly you rush this to market, right? So like, you know, if, if your company or your market is such that the first to market or the first to have a lot of users is gonna have a benefit, uh, but you don't, but like you can't bootstrap your way all the way there. Even you have some revenue, but like you can't get there for like another year or two years and this capital will help you get there faster. That's a factor that might play in, 
Right. That that just depends on if you if you're like so like if you have an idea that's not very protectable IP wise, mm -hmm. like you don't have you don't own a patent, you don't have, but you have an idea and you put something together that other people could also potentially put together. But if you rush this to market and you can get more users, you're the first to market, you're gonna have a significant advantage. We're la we're like six tenth to the market. We just happen to do things a little bit different that mm -hmm. brings uniqueness to the market and we're able to undercut yeah. the competition. Yeah. Right. So um, if you can so if that's not if the rush to market is not really a factor, then you might want to wait to see what the revenue brings and, and what, what it does to your valuation. Yeah, yeah. I really feel like we should wait until we get the rev so that we can get a because right now, if we were to do a valuation pre-rev, this is like guesswork, right? You're just pulling a number out of your out of your butt, right? But if we get some revenue, we can do the multiplier, have a real evaluation, and now we're talking to investors with real numbers. Am I correct in saying that? But you could also do the convertible. Convertible, no, yeah. Loan and then uh, equity. Can you explain that to the people? I know a lot of people watching might not understand that jargon. Yeah, convertible note is a commonly used thing in, in tech investment and tech startups. Um, because tech companies early on have a lot of trouble coming up with evaluation, it's just there's no real way of doing it when you're pre-money. What they'll do is they'll do a convertible note and um, basically the investor is lending the money on a loan but then that loan can convert to equity at some point and they can define what point that is or is the option of the investor or is a certain convertible event that happens um, and that it, the loan turns to equity and then now the investor owns equity at a valuation that they determine at a later time. Uh, based upon a percentage? Yeah, I'll be like, so like, for example, right now we have no valuation and you want to lend me $500,000. So you have a 500K note and then I have no valuation right now. And then a year later you convert, but because we now have a valuation, right? And the benefit of, of getting in on a convertible note is that we might give you some benefit. We might say that you get a, a, a coupon. So like, let's say the valuation comes out to be 10 million, right? And then now your, your um, equity is worth um, like 5%. Um, we might say that, you know, we'll give you a discount. So if a $10 million valuation, we'll give you a 20% discount on the valuation. And then your equity converts at that 10, 20% discount, whatever that amount ends up being. Right. So that, that's the kind of the, the, the thing that you use a note for. How does that differ from the Y Combinator uh, agreement? Are you familiar with the Y Combinator agreement? They... What's that? I know I, I'm familiar with the Y Combinator, the agreement, which agreement are you talking about? Yeah, they, they basically created something similar to a convertible note, which um, operates just basically off of a discount. Yeah. Basically says, hey, you know, uh, you can lend this money or invest now. Um, and in the future, at a future evaluation, you just get a, a basic discount. Some, it's not a convertible note, but it operates similarly. I was just wondering if you checked out the contract. It's a really simple contract. It's like only like three pages or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's basically like a deferred equity. They, they're, you're, you're still investing in equity. It never becomes a note. And then it just, it just the, the, the percentage is determined later on a coupon. Right, so right. It's basically a convertible note without the note. It's just equity that's, that's deferred. Right, right. Um, what kind of deals would you recommend for people who go through Funderfox or would it be on a case by case basis? You know, when I think about Funderfox and I think people signing up, uh, I think that everybody probably goes through one basic model to make things simple or is it customized each, each deal? No, I think, I think that there's a, a wide variety of, of different types of things that we can put on Funderfox. So like it can be, um, you know, you can raise for a real estate transaction, right? So you're, you're buying into a, a particular uh, real estate asset. You pull the assets from the crowdfunding, 
people get in and then you know there's a there's a, there's an option later on there's an exit strategy on real estate whether you're going to sell the property or you're going to refi and exit the investors something like that and that would be great on crowdfunder and um uh, uh, thunder fox sorry and um the real the the real estate has like a very clear sort of thing right like uh, people understand that a little better here's like a physical building i know what i'm getting i'm getting a percentage of this building and i know the exit strategy the building is going to sell or it's going to refi so it's a very clear sort of clear cut thing. Uh, it's a little bit less risky. Um, so you can have something like that. And then you can have something like a tech startup that's raising, right? Uh, and it could be like um, early stage tech and they're raising a certain amount. Um, and then you can also have things that are more local, right? So like a person is like, I'm going to open up a retail, uh, you know, whatever. Store, or retail like store, or restaurant, or something. Here, here's my model, and here's the returns, and all that kind of stuff. And so, people from that community and for that neighborhood are likely to invest in that because, like, mm. a lot of the Thunderbox stuff, like the marketing is going to be. Although many investors might look at your thing, more more than likely, it's going to be the how you market your yourself. So, like, if your idea is that I want to open a store here and I want my community, my community to invest in it, that you market that out to your community, and then everybody pulls their assets together. So, I think you can see all types of things. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when we think about raising money, of course, we got to talk about how much, right? So is there a number that people should say uh, they should be asking for, or, or are we going based upon needs, right? Like I'm looking at my sheet and I'm saying, here's what I need, and I'm going to do that times two or whatever, right? Or is it like, you better not be asking for anything less than a million because nobody's going to take you serious. How does that all work? Because I might only need $20,000 right now, right? I think, I think um, you want to crowdfund for anywhere between, because there are some costs to crowdfunding, you want to be able to raise at least 50K and then it can go all the way with the new laws. You can go all the way up to 5 million. So anything between that is cool. And I think a lot of early stage companies are not going to need a million. Uh, they may only need like 500,000. They may only need something like something in that ballpark um, and others will, but you should always you should always raise what you need because you don't want to be giving up more equity than you need to, just to have more capital that you don't necessarily need at that moment. Mm -hmm. You want to have you want to take as much as you need and then allow your company to grow. What what should people be looking for in a in an investor? I know a lot of times, at least for me, when I look for an investor, for example, we have one investor uh, interested, uh, one of the sharks floating around and. He can actually get sales and bring revenue for the company. So that's what I look for, right? Is there, a, can my investor be dual purpose and help me break into the market? Yeah. Um, that's a question you have to ask. Do you want smart money or you want dumb money? And, uh, it's, I mean, that's the terms. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you're, you, you kind of want the dumb money. You just, you know exactly what you're doing and it's a particularly niche thing and you know what you're doing and you know how to like capitalize off of it. Um, and you just need the money to like kind of make it go. Um, other times, I think in most tech companies, especially when you're offering software as a service, you want to, you might want smart money. So you want people who are going to invest, but they're also going to add value in the business development side. Absolutely. Or, or they can be advisory or they have some sort of skill set that, that benefits your company. What kind of uh, investments are, are, are uh, investors looking for today? Because when you when when I'm thinking about myself as an investor, I ain't touching anything brick and mortar. I'll tell you that right now. I'm not touching restaurants, especially not restaurants. I mean, what's the profit margin on those things, right? Yeah. Um, and then the, what's yeah. that? Failure rates are high, also. Right, and then the failure rates exactly. So I'm not touching anything. I'm going all software. 
uh, with with my investment. But I would argue that, uh, well, given the current, given the whole COVID thing, that might change. But um, yeah, because everybody's gonna be excited to go back outside again. Yeah, yeah, but the thing is, like, I think restaurant, like, if you do like a one-off restaurant that does something, I think you're gonna see high failure rates. But when you're talking about like franchises, um, those have done significantly better. Mm. So yeah. if you're trying to get in the restaurant business, you probably want a franchise. Franchise, yeah. particularly particularly if you're in um, fast food or but also fast casual, right? Those those two t- categories are, are doing well because you're gonna benefit from just the name recognition, the brand recognition. People are gonna go into into your restaurant, and number two, you're gonna benefit from the uh, all the delivery apps. Um, Mm-hmm. And now there's actually uh, this idea of ghost kitchens. And you're familiar with ghost kitchens, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Ghost kitchens can also really help where you just sort of do the delivery. You don't even have a physical yeah. restaurant. Right, right. You have a physical kitchen somewhere. You just, yeah, you just need to rent out the kitchen, yeah. 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 I saw all these like meal prep companies and stuff, yeah. especially, especially the fitness ones. There's one, I don't know what brother was using, there's one in New Jersey called Eat Clean, bro. Yeah, they, yeah. Got, they got really big. Yeah. You, you can see cars driving around with the painted on the side, but they, they got big during COVID because people were trying to eat healthy also. And so they just had the, just, it's a ghost kitchen set up and they got yeah. big off that. I think that's the only place where the food in the food industry you'd want to be. Yeah. I had that ghost kitchen idea about two, three years ago for a friend of mine. And I'm like, um, why don't you just do this digitally? You know? And, yeah, yeah. but he didn't, I don't think he wanted to pay the fee. I don't think he could afford the fee to rent out the kitchen and so on and so forth because you got to follow his compliances and whatnot, right? right? You can't just do it out of your home because the communists will come get you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what kind of what kind of deals are these investors looking at? What kind of companies are they looking at? I know it's got to be mostly tech. I think tech and health, right? Tech, healthcare, healthcare is big. Healthcare, tech. Healthcare, tech. Healthcare, tech, right. Yeah, and, um, and real estate. And real estate, what kind of real estate deals? Real estate, this could be, I mean, you could do like a simple, like, uh, you could, like, you could, like, they could be like a portfolio of like a bunch of residentials that are acquired distressed assets that are, you know, renovated and either held for uh, income and then the income just comes or they're, um, they're flipped and sold and they're liquidated and you move on to the next one or like a, a larger, um, you know, like a, like a, like a strip mall or something like that. And you're just part of that kind of deal. So mm. real estate deals, I mean, the real estate deals are always going to be around. Yeah. There's, there's always going to be, because they're so predictable. They're much more like, you know, you, you, you know what tangible. you're getting. It's, it's tangible. It's a tangible thing. So every real estate under any time is, it's always going to be one of those steady investments that people are always going to be looking to invest in. So real estate is. And so, that's a thing that you'll find people in your community involved in. Like you'll find yeah. people in your community who are doing real estate, who understand real estate. And mm-hmm. those people know it. They, they run around, they hustle a lot. They find deals. And they lack capital. So, like, if those people are empowered to then have capital to put into these deals, there's a lot of security for the investor because you're secured in the properties, uh, and also, um, you know, there's a more predictability. You know, there's a, you know, you buy a property, it closes, you know, you renovate it, it finishes, you put it on the market, it sells. There's a closing, everybody gets liquidated. Like, it's it's, it's a very predictable sort of schedule that people can understand and follow. Mm. What if I wanted to do? Uh purchase of an apartment complex, I can use uh, Wonder Fox to raise that money from my cohort to make that happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. The only limit is that it's a $5 million cap. So you got to so, find, it's got to be somewhere 
where you could get an apartment complex for under five million. Yeah. So basically, not in New Jersey. Yeah, but you could go to other states and you could, yeah, you could find like, especially like these like Western states, you know. Ohio, oh, that's where AI company is based out of. Yeah, Yo, you can buy Ohio right now for like a buck. <laughs> LeBron didn't buy Ohio yet. <laughs> I don't know why. You know, and I think about Ohio. I'm just like, you can probably buy the whole state for one Bitcoin, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the real estate's really dirt cheap. Like that. One of my things was, you know, one of my dreams was, I'm, I want to just take over Akron one day. Like it's yeah. just really a depressed area. There's no entertainment happening there. And it's just like, they need a black guy to come in there and just, you know, bring some fun and some life back into that city. And I think that's why LeBron's um, so you, praised. You've yeah. got two NBA legends from there, right? Is cool. Steph Curry from Akron? Is he? Yeah. Well, he was born there, but he's not he's, like, he's born from, he wasn't like raised there or anything. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, born, but he was born there. Okay. He was born, he was born in Akron, yeah. So they're gonna claim him. They're like, he's born here, that's ours, right? Yeah, they would claim him during the All-Star. So there's two, there's two MVPs that have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was so weird. I was out there. That's the first time I saw a black 20-something male cleaning a hotel room. Wow. Usually that, you know, I'm used to seeing a, a Latino female yeah. older age doing that type of work. Out there it was like some black kid like Tyrone. And I'm just like, you, you, this is the job. It's just a whole other world out there, you know? So, so, you know, when I think about investing, I think it's definitely for the take-in. Yeah, um, yeah. You guys know much about crypto? I mean, yeah. I mean, a little bit. I'm not a, a big, uh, not a big into crypto as other, other people are, but. Yeah. Bit. Do you think crypto is a form of wealth? This is an argument we were having earlier uh, on Clubhouse with the Coinbits app team. And um, so I'll give you my argument. I said that Bitcoin was a vehicle to wealth. And for me, I equate wealth to freedom. Uh, so wealth would be, I own my land. I own the water on the land. I have a well, I have a, a, a solar farm, my chickens, my cows my farm, like I'm completely independent. To me, that's wealth. Also having firearms and ammo to me is a form of wealth because you can protect your assets, right? And plus the, the rise in price. Do you see Bitcoin as wealth or, uh, or a vehicle to wealth? I, I, so, so far, I think it's been a vehicle to wealth. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, would, I would say a vehicle to wealth because when you think about, because it's like we were talking about this, like when if you actually think about the, even like the COVID relief packages, right? For example, right? We're talking about how, um, you know, everyone's so concerned about the stimulus money, right? And all this, you're just getting pumped fiat currency, right? But what are, what are the wealthy people doing, right? They're buying up land, they're buying up land. So to me, to me, the way I view wealth is like, I agree with you in the sense, you know, I own my own land, I have access to my own water, I can grow my own food on it, I can protect it. Like to me that I agree that's wealth because at the end of the day, if the US dollar completely crashed, right? What, 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 this, we were talking about this recently, which was if you have, you know, you don't have, like if you have millions spread out across banks, right? Yeah. It's insured up to whatever the FDIC, whatever does it to 250K or whatever, yeah. right? The reality is if all that crashed, you're not getting your money, no. right? So you could have all that money stored up, but if you don't have actually physical things that your money is converted to, then 
you know, in in essence, it's not a real thing, right? So, yeah. so I agree with you. I think it's a I think it's a vehicle. I mean, just, I think the way that people have used it has just been like a, a tool of speculation. It's become an asset that you own, uh, and just is it's not used as currency. It's just used as an asset. Yeah. You don't. You can't really do much with it until you liquidate that asset, convert it to something else. But you can't really buy things with it realistically. Right. You buy some things, yeah, but yeah, yeah some but things here and there, but realistic, you, yeah. you don't even want to do that on, on a bigger scale. No, you can't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you wouldn't want to. You know, like yeah. you, you ain't getting my Bitcoin. I don't care what you got. I'm not. You, know, you can get have these fiat notes, but you can't have my Bitcoin. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I. 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 I uh, are you familiar with Gresham's law? No. no. So um, Gresham's law of money basically says that um, uh, bad money drives out good. Mm-hmm. So uh, back in the day uh, when we had like, uh, you know, when the central banks were trying to come in and whatnot, they were doing a fractional reserve thing. Um, coin clipping was happening. Um, and they were issuing these fiat notes. Well, what happened was people started hoarding silver and then because America had an abundance in silver and there was a lack of silver in Europe, people were speculating the European markets with physical silver. So good money was actually leaving the U.S. market because bad money existed. So Gresham's Law says bad money drives out good money out of the market because you don't even want to spend your silver. You're like, I don't want to give you this for this note because if I go to the note one day, they might say I can't have it in silver like they've had numerous times, right? Um, Like post-Nixon shock. So, um, so, so when I think about, um, I kind of lost my train of thought. Oh, so, 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 so when I think about Bitcoin, what I say is that bad money turns good money into a reserve asset. And that's what Bitcoin has become. The fiat currency is the bad money and, and Bitcoin has become a reserve asset. So Hotep Jesus's law of, of money says that bad money turns good money into a reserve asset as in the case with bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies does that does that sound sound to you yeah i, I, I probably agree with that i mean i think that's what yeah that's what bitcoin is right now yeah yeah you guys have bitcoin yeah yeah do you have a coinbits app account i don't did you set it up all right guys that's the end of this interview (laughs) what's up what's up (laughs) it's like no i'm playing i'm playing but you gotta get on there man coinbits uh dot app it's uh you know a a great way to automatically um invest in bitcoin you know just stack your satoshis without even thinking about it just sends you uh a receipt every monday and says hey you know here's your here's your bitcoin um receipt and we're we're actually going to allow you to remove bitcoin and, and store it in a wallet soon as well um, so I don't even think about the accumulation of Bitcoin. Obviously, I buy physical physical Bitcoin. I see I, I buy uh, cold Bitcoin as well. Um, but um, yeah. Um, so so uh, last question. We'll begin to wrap up here. What are some deals on Funder Fox that people should be that you you would tell the unaccredited investor to look out for on Funder Fox? Some sound things maybe where they can get because I know a lot of unaccredited investors is poor. They like yo, I need to return now. Right or I need some sort of recurring revenue. So what kind of deal should they be looking for for that, or or should they not be looking for that and be looking for like the long term home run? Yeah, I mean, I I think I think when when it comes to um, if if you want if you want safer money, I think you're going to be looking for some of those real estate type investments, right? Uh-huh. So some of those where there's a projected plan, right? 
there's a, there's a plan of action where you know the exit strategy, right? So I think if you're somebody who doesn't want to take risk, right? I think you're looking more at stuff like that, right? Um, if you are trying to play the long game, I think you're investing in a couple different tech companies, yeah. right? And one thing we are going to do is we're going to have some level of vetting for companies that get listed on Funderfox, right? So it's not just like, you're just going to have like a bunch of random companies on there. Yeah. There'll be some, some sort of vetting. Um, and then you obviously you have to do your research and due diligence on it. But I think the long-term game is going to, it's going to give people access that didn't have access to those tech companies before. Right. But you got to approach it the way that those companies approach it, which is they put a little bit of money in this company, that company, that company, that company, knowing that one of those companies will take off, but the other ones might fail, but mm. that might cover your spread of, you know, the loss on all those other companies. Um, and then, and, and then some of the local things might, might be worth it. So if yeah. someone, you know, like in your community is opening, um, some sort of retail store or some, uh, some sort of like tangible business and you can, can actually, them. yeah, you can empower them and you can also see the, um, you can actually see their plan of action of what's where they're going to pull revenue from. Right. And if you can see that, like, for example, like a ghost kitchen or something, or like one of these, like, you know, um, other type of delivery things, right. You, you can see like, okay, it's very easy for me to visualize that this person is going to go out and do this and that's how they're going to make money. And so that's how I'm going to make money. So I, I think you got, there's a couple of different approaches depending on what type of investor you are. You are somebody that's going to have high risk tolerance or you're going to have low risk tolerance. If it's low risk tolerance, you're investing in the safe traditional kind of things like the real estate or the tangible assets. And if you're trying to play the long-term game and hit it a little bit bigger, then you're, you're probably spreading it out and investing in a couple of different tech companies. Yep. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. What do you, uh, I just had this idea, what are you going to do for the hustler, AKA the broker? Because you have the investor and then you have the investee, you know, is there anything for the guy that says, hey, I just want to play middleman on Funder Fox. Is there anything for them? So really, the, that's... Like a that's referral the, program or something? The point of the crowdfunding portal is to connect the investor directly with the um, with the companies, yeah. mm -hmm. right? So the, the companies are directly facing their investors, putting it out there broadly and bringing them in, right? Um, this notion of like the, the middleman who kind of brings capital, um, I think that's not, I don't think that's going to be a much of a play in the crowdfunding game. Okay. But the crowdfunding, the crowdfunding company is going to want somebody else if that's not their core uh, skill set is to market their um, listing. Yeah. They're going to want to bring on people to help market it. Now, whether or not that becomes like a broker type relationship or more of like a, a marketing service, um, I think the companies and the, the people involved are going to have to work that out. But, yeah, I was uh, thinking like a referral link. Yeah. With, yeah. A, with a small percentage of... Yeah. I think they just have to be careful because you might run afoul of some regulations. Here. <laughs> oh, yeah. We don't want to upset the commies. <laughs> yeah. Because the SEC also regulates people that help other people find capital. Oh my God! God forbid you help somebody get some money. Oh man, that's, that's the way the. I mean, look, the, the whole idea is that this is supposed to protect people from fraud, right? Uh, but fraud goes on. White anyway. collar crime and fraud is like rampant, right? Right. But all that's done is is prevent people from helping each other find capital or to benefit each other. So it's yeah. I, I think it's BS, but. We also yeah. don't want people to run afoul of these regulations. Yeah. Like right. we said, it's, this is like one of the openings in, in, in this whole bigger picture. So we can't, you know, we, we, we got to move, but also tread a little bit lightly and not risk putting ourselves in trouble. So, um, 
you know, like I said, the, the idea of the whole crowdfunding platform is really to connect the company directly uh, to the average person to be able to invest in it. Um, so that, that's kind of we're bridging that gap, right? Yep. Yeah, interesting. So Funderfox is uh, coming soon. Yep. Uh, what what can they do on the website now? I see two calls to action. You want to walk people through that? Yeah. So right. So right now, um, you know, we just we just got the website up, but uh, we're going to be building out the platform, the crowdfunding platform that'll come out later this year. Um, so that's going to be a later in 2021 kind of thing. Right now, what they can do is um, um, they can work with us on the consulting side. So whether they just have an idea and they want to actually get a business up and running, they can come to us, they can contact us and we can, we can discuss with them. How do we, you know, what steps they need to take to do that. Um, there's certain services we can provide, obviously like legal services and things like that and marketing, we can do that. Um, and then, you know, we, we can get them ready so we can set them up so they can get ready to crowdfund. Right. Uh, and then as soon as our platform is live, those companies will be able to list on there. Yeah. Yeah. So th those are the kind of things they can do right and now. As, and, and one thing I wanted to add, we didn't mention, is that we talked about educating on the on the company side, getting people from point zero to the you know to, to to having a functioning company. Like we're doing that without any kind of fluff or or hustle, just like a straight doing that. But also, we're when we when the companies are listed, when the when the crowdfunding side is up and there's companies listed, the role of the influencer becomes kind of important here, right? Because a lot of people will look up there and say, like, I, I want to invest in a tech startup, but like, I don't know which one is really good. Um, I think educating the investor, um, like we're going to do something on our side to make sure that all these things are legit, that there's no hustlers, there's no fraud. That's something that, that, that we're going to do from our end. But there still needs to be further, like which of these is more likely to succeed than others. I think other influencers, people who understand technology companies have to look at them and say, look, you know, I, I think this one's a winner. And I think other people might follow suit. So I think the role of the influencer becomes something more pronounced because um, they can actually help uh, undercredit investors kind of like understand why um, this particular company might do well or this one might not. Nobody can guarantee anything, but at least people have that kind of thing to go off. Mm, yeah. mm. That's dope. That's dope. Um, do you already have your engineering team in place to, to set this web portal up? The reason why I'm asking is because um, I have an engineer now I'm working with. He built the... Uh, uh, the Grifties app and uh, him and I are uh, in talks of building uh, basically a, a, a web app company because uh, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people right now that need apps, but they're all going to India right? yep. or, or Vietnam or Russia. Right. Yep. And a lot of people um, don't want to deal with that time zones, not being able to, you know, track these people down untrustworthiness, mm -hmm. you know, not being able to deliver. So, um, yeah, if you guys need uh, some some engineer help on that, we'd love to we'd love to pitch in, man. That's awesome, man. We should help you connect. Yeah, we we can connect on that. And um, just like to add, I got I got to do the 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 plug in shout out so everybody knows. On Twitter, it's at FunderFoxCF, and on Instagram, we're at FunderFox. So you can follow us there. We're on LinkedIn and all that stuff. We're getting everything else set up right now, but you know. You can connect okay. with us there just so, just so you can stay updated as soon as we have more news and we're going to be putting out content, just kind of educating people on stuff, you know, including obviously like, like what we just did here. Uh, so we're going to be doing, just putting out some more short informational pieces out uh, regarding crowdfunding mm -hmm. and, um, and just kind of, you know, for entrepreneurs in general. So sweet, sweet. That's yeah. dope. I'll add one last thing. We're going to tease, but we're not going to say that there's a one added surprise when this platform launches. There's going to be one added surprise that's going to be awesome, and it's not going to be on any other platform. 
I'm not going to say more than that, but just yeah. keep following Thunder Fox and, and wait for our launch. It's Hotep Jesus. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Great talk today, fellas. Thank yeah. you very much. Kent the Row 499 Super Chat. He said, accept this, ah, accept this watch tax if it pleases the crown. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Hey, Sharose, yeah. uh, Tariq, thank you very much. I'm going to go ahead and close out the show. You guys can go ahead and yeah. uh, get out of here. Thank you for yeah, coming through, man. Appreciate Thanks, you having man. us, appreciate man. It. Hey, anytime. That's it, people. Help up, Jesus. Sharp Conversations. This conversation will be on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud in time so make sure you go subscribe just type in sharp conversation sharp with an e and that stuff will pop right up appreciate y'all hotep i love y'all till the next time